A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Heko nai purangi te nai na te reo irirangi o aotearoa. Kia ora, no mai haramai ki te auhurehanga. Hello and welcome to Our Changing World, ko Clark and Cannon te nai. Imagine a future where your burger comes with a plankton patty, where you're prepped for a hospital operation with an algal anaesthetic. If Cawthorne Institute researchers have their way, this marine-themed future for food and pharmaceuticals will be just around the corner. To find out more, Alison Balance is in Nelson to visit the Cawthorne Institute's microalgal collection. It's one of Aotearoa's valuable national biological collections, and her guide is Chief Science Officer Dr. Kath McLeod. We're heading to the Culture Collection, which is an amazing collection of um, microalgae. Um, microalgae are little tiny microscopic organisms. You can't see them with the naked eye. They're photosynthetic, so they capture carbon dioxide and, and they take in nutrients, and they use that to, to grow, to grow and divide. So is this plankton? Yes, yes, yeah. Ah, fantastic. Yep, yep, so yep, phytoplankton. Yep, phytoplankton. So, so you generally can't see them with the naked eye um, unless there's blooms, and then they can look like clouds in the sea at times. And then you can see them from space. Then you can see them from space, exactly, yeah. So we get all sorts of different blooms. The really spectacular ones can be luminescent and glow in the dark, and you guys have probably heard about phosphorescence. I've seen people maybe at night jumping off wharfs and the water shimmers off their bodies. And that's microalgae? That's microalgae, yeah. Oh, yeah, wow. Yeah, it's incredible. Well, I'm not going to see any of that in the collection? <laughs> well, you'll see a whole lot of different types, but you won't see luminescence today. <laughs> OK, well, let's go and have a look. Yeah, cool. So it's a collection that's been um, in place for around, let's say, rough figures, 30 years. Um, so, yeah, so it's a very special collection, probably very untapped. So we know a little bit about it, and we'd love to know a lot, a lot more. Yeah. Great. Well, we've just stepped inside a door. Hi, I'm Alison. Hello, I'm Sarah. I'm the curator for the Culture Collection. Oh, thank you for letting me visit. <laughs> You're welcome. Wow. Okay, so we've come into a room that's full of racks with lots and lots of this little potholes on the racks. Yeah, this is mainly focused on the temperate Culture Collection. So the temperate, the nice cool. 17 degree. So these are mainly New Zealand isolates. We've also got um, tropical isolates at 25 and we've got a whole bunch of ones from Antarctica now um, in the fridge. <laughs> and so, I, you know, it's a really important thing to understand that it's a live collection. Um, so, you know, they have to be actively maintained um, in order to continue growing. We've got about 750 strains in total. About half of them are cryopreserved, so they're mainly the freshwater ones. So um, cryopreserved is they're frozen? Yep, yeah, frozen. So they're at minus 176 degrees C in, like in, in liquid nitrogen. And what can you do with those ones? Uh, you can thaw them. Yep. And then they will just start growing. You know, it's a it's a process of a few days to thaw them, but they will just they grow again regenerate. after they've been frozen. Yeah, they're wow. incredible. Okay, and that's they can very just, handy. It's a lot less maintenance um, looking after them when they're frozen. Yeah. So, what does maintaining these little things involve? Um, well, each each sort of cluster of three is one of our isolates. So, about every three weeks, I check the health of the cultures, and then we transfer them into new growth media, and we've got about. 13, 14 different types of growth media that we make 
the, so that's the essentially the water that they're in? Yeah, it's basically seawater or freshwater with added nutrients. But mm. some sort of co- more coastal species, um, they have quite a lot of soil in the water and there's just different balances of nutrients and some suit some more than others. Mm. Okay, <laughs> well looking at them, some, some of the bottles look almost completely clear. The others look like they've got a tiny little yellowy green film yeah. in the bottom. Yeah, ones. most of the dinoflagellates. Oh, there's flag- pink at the bottom. Yeah, yeah. most of the dinoflagellates are this kind of brown that's that one's actually quite orange but a sort of greedy brown color mm. and then some of the blue greens uh, are really gorgeous green and mm. we, we have got a few pink ones which is nice, oh, nice. <laughs> i like the pink ones yeah have you got any particular favorites in here <laughs> or oh, do yeah. you shower them with equal amounts of love <laughs> well no some of them are definitely more interesting than others and that's i really enjoy looking down the microscope at them and there's a beautiful um phaocystis which forms colonies it's a tiny, tiny, they look like pinpoints really under the microscope, but it forms these colonies that are kind of like dandelion clocks. So you can, they're, they're like globes just, and you can, you can go up and down through the globe in the, with the microscope, and that's my favourite one. <laughs> <laughs> um, and some of them, are, well, most of them are motile, which very much surprised me when I first started. So they can move. Yeah. They swim. Yeah, they swim around. Some of them zoom around quite fast. Some of them sort of ping like little pinball machines. Some of them slink along the bottom. How does a micro plant swim? Well, they have little flagella, yeah. little, like little hair-like structures that they can wave around to whip themselves around. So in the water column, they're very clever. You know, they can stratify but to particular parts. This is out in the ocean, you know, to particular parts of the water column where the light, nutrient content, temperature is just, you know, spot on. The history of how this began is quite interesting. So Cawthron, um, many years ago now, became involved in shellfish monitoring. So shellfish can accumulate algae because they feed off algae in the water. And sometimes algae produce really nasty toxins and the shellfish can accumulate that. And then if people eat enough of it, they can become sick. So... Cawthron became involved in testing shellfish toxins and also routinely collecting microalgae from around the country in seawater and the idea being that if we detected certain species of microalgae it's a predictor of shellfish toxicity and so we started doing that for the government and um, and the collection was born really we started collecting some of these isolates um, that were interesting and that's really just grown over 30 odd years and now we collect not only bad ones that produce toxins but also just just a hot, full range of microalgae. Increasingly we hope to collect non-toxics because we've started to realise that you know they can be very good for human health. So are you focusing on particular ones that you're interested in or are you actually just getting everything that you can? A combination of both so so we're out there actively in some spaces looking for anything and everything and then in other areas it's very targeted so um, you know we have researchers that go up into the Pacific that are really interested in a toxin called Sigatera that um, can accumulate into reef fish and cause illness Um, so in that instance we are interested in um, Gamia discus which is a particular one but in other contexts we are interested in in fishing (laughs) which is just going out there and, and seeing what we can collect and then looking at what the composition of those are. 
So what we're looking at here really then is a whole lot of untapped potential. Yeah, that's right. That's right. You know, and, and we, you know, we would dearly love to have access to really large funds to be able to comprehensively screen this collection for both known and unknown compounds. We know that some of the compounds they produce um, can be used in pharmaceuticals and you'll talk to Andy this afternoon about a compound called neosaxitoxin which holds great promise as a local anaesthetic. Um, it's a very exciting piece of our work. And this is the, that's the one that's producing the neosaxitoxin. So you're holding a flask which is? Alexandrium pacificum. Alexandrium pacificum and it's a beigey, yellowy colour. Yeah, they distribute themselves right through the water column. So and where does that the... one come from originally, do you know? That was from Opua Bay, that isolate. Yeah, oh, Marlborough okay. Sounds. Marlborough Sounds. You know, Opua is kind of an interesting area. It had, for a long time, recurrent Alexandrian blooms, which impacted the shellfish industry. And, you know, I suppose the really fascinating thing about Alexandrian Pacificum is we know it really well because of the negative impacts it has on the shellfish sector and human health. So we, we know pretty well which algae are... The bad ones, I think the intriguing part for us is, you know, to, to explore more which ones hold major potential to impact into human health, either through nutrition or pharmaceuticals. You know, for us, collaborations with the likes of the Maligan Institute on cancer research is, is where we want to head with this collection because, uh, you know, I think that we've really only discovered the tip of the iceberg here at the moment. Now... I'm off to meet Cawthorne Institute researchers Andy Selwood and Matt Miller. They're in the business of unlocking all this plankton potential for food and drugs. And they're doing it in a facility that, at first glance, seems rather a long way from the modern molecular suite where the microalgae collection is housed. So we're in the Wakatu Industrial Estate and we're in a facility located behind Animates, a pet store, next to a second-hand uh, clothing store and the building that we're about to enter into is the old freezing works, it was the cool store. But as is often the case, first impressions can be very misleading. So welcome to the future. Welcome to the future, he says. Wow! Yeah, we've used this facility as kind of the next step up from the laboratory to a, a pilot plant where we can have a bit of a play and prototype equipment and work out the best way to grow this algae, but also potentially we can use it on this scale for commercial production too. I think we'll start off by going into this room. So inside here there is one litre bioreactors that are set up to run experiments with microalgae to optimise their growth. So first of all, what's a bioreactor? A bioreactor is essentially a, a vessel that is used to contain an organism and provide all the parameters it needs to grow and flourish. So in this case, what are you providing? So we're providing the culture medium, which is a, a water. It's either fresh water or seawater. Uh, sea and then we give it nutrients, which is essentially like fertiliser for plants, and we provide it with light and we control the temperature. So it's almost like hydroponics for microalgae. Yeah, it's a very similar system to hydroponics. Another way to view a bioreactor is, uh, I'm a keen home brewer, so a fermenter for brewing beer is a form of a bioreactor where we propagate yeast and we feed them sugar. 
So these things don't need sugar. A lot of these just need light at certain wavelengths. So that's why we got this beautiful sort of purple light, which is a mixture of red and blue wavelengths to give the algae the right energy that it needs to grow and thrive. So is this equivalent to what they'd get in the sea or is it even better than what they'd get at sea? The way I think about it is thousands of years ago when they first plucked the potato out of um, a jungle and said how do we grow it, we're doing that now. We're trying to understand the right conditions for it to thrive and survive. So that includes giving it the right energy. So they may in the sea do all right at certain wavelengths but if we change them around slightly they may grow like a weed and start really producing and producing biomass or the bioactives that we're looking for in high amounts. And that's where we can control every little thing about their environment. So their salinity, their temperature, their light, the, the amount of air or carbon dioxide bubbling through it. We can control all those things and find that little hot spot where they just love it. And we can sort of then optimise everything else around that to grow at a larger scale. So this is where it starts looking really sci-fi. So we've got the master control system, which is ubiquitous touchscreen computer here, which is quite large. And next to it is a foot-high glass container with a green algae with air bubbling through it. On its three of its sides, there is an array of lights that are beaming in energy at certain wavelengths and this will be growing under different conditions to all these other bioreactors. There are 16 bioreactors here all testing different conditions to optimize its growth. So these will be grown for a week and over that week we'll understand how much biomass it's made but also what bioactives they have inside that. So this experiment right now is really trying to find a alternative protein source for the food system. So instead of using animal-based protein or vegetable-based protein, we could use an algal-based protein and grow it in a larger version of this that we can have improved environmental, improved nutritional outcomes. So what kind of nutrients are you looking for? Are you after what, some proteins, some fatty acids? What are you looking for? This experiment right now is focused on protein. We're working with a company called Newfish, who are very interested in revolutionising the food system by creating algal protein sources. So who would have thought maybe 15 years ago the ubiquity of like plant-based burgers in all our diets? Uh, the next step in that evolution could be algae-based food systems. What made you choose this particular species of algae to work on? So in the larger project, we are scanning our collection over 100 different species to find which one of them produce the most protein. And then it goes through a process of we're picking 10 candidates to go to this stage where we start optimising its conditions to find where it will thrive. Once we've found three really good likely prospects, we move it to the larger bioreactors to really start scaling up that process and really hoping to develop kilograms of product that we can make as prototypes so investors and food industry people can see use this ingredient in their composition of different food products. Have you got some strong candidates yet? Are there standout ones? Yeah they have. We've got uh, half a dozen or so candidates that have a 
concentration of over 50% protein and they have some very fast grow times. So that's the thing you want to weigh up as well. Do Will these grow well and how much protein? So it's sort of uh, a bit of a gamble and it's a little bit of a discovery process right now but it's very exciting science because you actually along the way see that dial turn slowly into something that could be really commercially viable. Is there much other research being carried on I'm thinking worldwide in this area or is this pretty cutting edge? This is pretty cutting edge but there's been lots of work in this space so probably the best example I have is a spin out of NASA so in the 60s and 70s when they were looking at space travel they wanted to feed these astronauts on long trips and they were looking at microalgae so one of those species got spun out of that system and after 50 years of development it's a commercial product that's producing long chain omega-3 for aquaculture nutrition nutraceutical industries so it's taken a long time for that species to come through but there's all these ones now that are riding on the coattails behind it like strong winds that are pushing through other candidates that are moving outside of omega-3 into sort of carotenoids or proteins or other bioactives that are, have the potential to enter the food system or the nutraceutical or even the pharmaceutical world what's a bioactive by the way so a bioactive, it's quite a generic term. It really means a substance that has an effect on a living organism. And most substances have some effect. If you have a glass of water, that has an effect on you. But the ones that we're usually interested in are ones that are quite potent, so have an immediate and an acute effect. It could be positive or negative. Um, you can have a glass of vodka, for example, and that's a bioactive where you'll feel an immediate effect. Or it could be something more nutritional, like omega-3 fatty acids that, that Matt discussed before. And the ones that I'm really interested in are these extremely potent ones. And the reason I'm interested in them is because they pose a risk to us as consumers of food. So these can be toxic, so they can have negative effects on you. But also in terms of developing the technology, I think the place to start is with high-value products because it's quite expensive to start with when you're developing a technology. You can't start with producing a commodity, right? So we're starting at the, the top of the value pyramid, starting with pharmaceuticals, where we only need tiny quantities of these compounds to deliver an effective dose. So I've been working on a drug development project, um, looking at a compound that's derived from microalgae to be used as a long-acting local anaesthetic. A local anaesthetic, okay. Yeah, so the difference with this substance compared to uh, conventional local anaesthetics is it will last not only a matter of hours, but up to days. So it can be used for your surgical procedure and then also to manage the post-operative pain, which has the added benefit of reducing the need for opioids to manage pain. Andy's talking about neosaxitoxin, which, as we heard from Kath and Sarah, comes from the microalgae Alexandrium pacificum. It's quite an interesting story because it, it, it's taken a microalgae that was harmful, so it was having a, a negative effect on our aquaculture industry, the mussel farmers. So this organism produces this compound which can be toxic at certain doses, so this ends up in shellfish. If we eat those shellfish, then we can become ill. So we took that and we are using this toxin at doses that are safe 
and can be applied in a specific way where it can be used as a local anaesthetic. Did you know it would be useful as a local anaesthetic or did you just go, this is something really potent, let's investigate? So we were approached by Boston Children's Hospital, Harvard Medical School. They had um, linked the use of this toxin to its potential to be used as a local anaesthetic. Now the way that it's toxic is it, it blocks these channels or structures on the surface of your nerve cells and this can block sensory actions such as feeling pain but it can also cause a motor block so it means you can't move so it causes paralysis so this is the toxic effect all local anaesthetics work in this way so if you have too much of it or in an uncontrolled dose then it can cause paralysis and if you have paralysis of your diaphragm you ultimately can't breathe so that's that's not good for you so we didn't come up with the concept, this was developed by other people, um, but we had the know-how on how to produce this compound. So that was the limitation at the time. The researchers at Harvard knew that this compound would work, but they didn't know where to source it. So we were producing the purified compound to use as an analytical standard, and an analytical standard is um, a purified substance of a known concentration that we can use to calibrate instruments that measure levels of that substance in, in other products such as muscles. So it's quite a long story, it's 30 years of knowledge around these toxins from trying to how to analyse them, how does that affect our green shell muscle industry, how does that affect our ecology and then it came through to oh we know enough about it let's make some small amounts so we can help us testing which turned into a commercial entity of like selling those small amounts to other research labs and then all of a sudden we're supplying the clinical trial to understand the efficacy in an analgesic setting. And it was quite a step change so we were producing tiny quantities yeah. for, for these analytical standards and then the quantities that they requested for clinical trials are still tiny. We're talking maybe up to one gram for a clinical trial. However, that was quite a step up from what we were doing. So we had to move from these small scale one litre reactors up to something much larger. So this was the challenge for us to go from really a, a research and development process to something that could be used for manufacturing on a global scale. And that's where we come into next door. So we moved from these small one litre bioreactors to 100 litre bioreactors to 1,000 litre bioreactors. Yeah, we have two of these 1,000 litre reactors. And that doesn't sound like a lot when we're talking about global demand. But out of those two reactors, we can get one gram of this compound, which is enough for about 50,000 doses. Gosh, you don't need much, do you? No. So, like I said, that's why we're starting at this end of the value pyramid. So we can develop systems for efficiently producing this microalgae and have a commercially viable process. So through this door, you will see three large bioreactors. They look like large R2-D2 units about the size of a, a water tank. And they are also lit up in the same purple, blue light, and they have all the controls that they have the other one. So you can control the amount of nutrients, the amount of te the temperature, uh, the amount of light or energy that's going into the system to optimise that growth at a scale. So growing it is just half the challenge. Extracting the compound out, isolating and purifying that is the next part. 
Yeah, and having a reliable, robust process. So if you're manufacturing a drug, you have to ensure that the quality is the same each time. How long does it take to grow a batch? So the current system that we're using, it takes two weeks. So we grow it semi-continuously. And what I mean by that is we use some of the previous culture to seed the next batch of culture. Okay, so it's like making sourdough. (laughs) Very similar, yeah. So we harvest about 90% of it and then we retain 10% of it, top it back up again with seawater and nutrients and let it grow again. So the potential for microalgae is huge from feeding the world or producing high-value bioactives that could help in medicine or nutrition. Uh, These critters grow in the oceans and we're only scratching the surface of what we know about them. New Zealand having a huge uh, water space gives us the opportunity to look at a, a myriad of different opportunities. And because they all grow in these little environmental niches, and they don't play by the rules of mammalian biology, they can cheat and change their biology to suit themselves, and that's where they produce these toxins or bioactive compounds like omega-3, or even if we get it right, just produce protein for us to sort of live off. Are you excited by the potential of this? Yeah, I'm very excited by the potential of this. Microalgae's got a huge future ahead. We've only really just scratched the surface of the possibilities. We've done this for land-based organisms, for discovering drugs for hundreds of years now. But if this drug is successful, this will be the first one derived from algae. So algae are extremely efficient at synthesising these compounds, much more efficient than what we could ever be in the laboratory. And most drugs have originated from natural sources originally. And we've gone through a phase of trying to synthesise novel compounds ourselves. And now we've got this opportunity to explore what exists in the ocean. And the ocean covers over 70% of the Earth's surface. So there's this huge untapped resource there with, with a lot of potential. And I think the reason why we haven't looked previously is because it's been much easier to deal with terrestrial organisms. You can go up to a a tree and and pick it and then play around with that, whether it's for a food or you find an active substance in there. But with microalgae, it's much harder. You can't just go up to the sea and and collect some microalgae. And we haven't had the technology to grow it. And we went through this phase with microorganisms when Alexander Fleming discovered penicillin. There wasn't systems for mass cultivation of the fungi. So it took a a number of years before he developed a system that could be used to produce enough of this compound to be useful. And I think we're at that phase now with microalgae. Thanks, Andy. That was Andy Selwood. And we also heard from Dr. Matt Miller, Dr. Kath McLeod and Sarah Challenger. They're all at the Cawthorne Institute. This story was produced by Alison Balance and mixing was by sound engineer William Saunders. Tim Watkin is executive producer of podcasts and series at RNZ. If you want to know more about this topic, our webpage is at rnz.co.nz slash ourchangingworld. We also post on X, formerly known as Twitter, or Facebook, where we are at RNZ Science. And if you enjoy listening to Our Changing World, please do help spread the word about the show. Tell one friend. It all helps. Thanks so much for listening. I'm Claire Kincannon. Have a great week. Kia pai. The wiki.